Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Come share a drink with me now while the others are away. My mates all used to call me Stoker John. This resting makes me restless, so I'll pass the time with you and bore you with my yarns before I'm gone. We used to work the old runs before the light speeds flew from Edwards Air to all tranquility. An atomic powered coffin numbered 1492 that we sentimental fools called Cassidy. I sweated in my silver suit and tended to the piles. Cabinetti only smiled when things went wrong. Old Cassie barely held up through the suborbital phase And we prayed and cursed and prodded her along Or came from the Mayville, ice and dust of every kind The bulk from Juno Palace, Carried from the moon and back hardware and supplies Perhaps to pay or a little rum for me that was all there was for us between the earth and moon A creaking ship and a job that didn't end The owners didn't care so long as cash and cargo flowed Not a one spare dime a damn on us to spend How many times did sun and earth spin around us in the sky How many moons I really couldn't see and when the siren sounded, I paid barely any mind Disaster just like any other day Well, Cassie'd gotten help, she didn't need it breaking up From a run-in with a drifting piece of junk And I had to scramble into my worn silvers at the call For I dared to spend an hour in my bunk we started our descent, the hull collapsed, the piles leaked. The crew in radiation doomed to drown. As locked in the lifeboat and smiled and said to me, It's a bus, John, but we'll try to hold her down. Now that was years ago, mind you, before the light speeds flew. Had to do the ore runs the long way. The atomics only made me sick since I had my silvers on. Left in a hospital bed now to this day. I'm told they made a light speed port from the ore and goods we shipped. And the city stands at all tranquility. Perhaps the spare a day. 1492 and poor Ed's crew who called her Cassidy. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello, and welcome to show 360. 
I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Now, what was that song? Well, that song was The Wreck of the Cassie D by David Bradshaw, which was the song that was one of the stretch goals on the Bradshaw's Kickstarter that was going on last year. And what can I say? Big huge thank you to the Bradshaws, Robin and David. What? David, not David. Go on, Rob, you can have a bit of praise as well. But a big, massive thank you. I just That story came through about last week. And like I say, just what a talent man that guy is. And it's going to give us a, a great excuse to play. David did another song for Oodles Ago, one of the Starship Sofa's volumes. It might have been volume two. We did a video. And David just hit the nail on the head with that song as well. So I'm going to play that right at the end. So there you go. David, what can I say? A big thank you. Just absolutely fantastic. Tell you what's coming in today's show then. First up is Science News by JJ Campanella. Then we've got, fantastic, a Peter Watts story, Bulk Food. There you go. That is today's show. And like I say, we'll be playing out with one of David Bradshaw's other songs that he did for Starship Sova. Then, right at the end, right at the end, if anyone's interested, I'm just going to mention a little thing. I've got a little idea about if anyone kind of suffers from anxiety, and I guess most of you know it kind of hits me every now and again. And I've got a little idea that I'm going to share with you, this little plan that I've got to put in place if you do suffer from it, just, you know what I mean, it's just hideous. So if anyone's out there suffers from anxiety, just listen to the end of the show. So, let us get in with Mr. JJ Campanella and his science news. Jim, sir. Greetings and mucilaginous amphiblutions, my loverly listeners. And welcome to this October 2014 Science News Update. I'm your host for this stupendously trenchant science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Well, I think we've entered Indian summer here in the northeast U.S., although I suppose you could blame global warming for the unusually high humidity and temperature at the moment. I will not side with either camp. I just want it to get cold here. I'm at my wit's end with sweating, and I would like a severe change in the weather. I suppose if you're a fan of Major League Baseball, then this is great weather for the playoffs because it's a bit more comfortable in the stands and for the players. Although I'm sure non-U.S. listeners could care less, for the first time since 1992, the baseball playoffs will proceed without traditional East Coast powerhouses like the New York Yankees and the Boston Red Sox. And you know what? I think I'd better hold that thought before I turn this into the sports news update. Let's just get started with our first story of the night. Do tonsils do anything useful? Well, up until a few weeks back, the answer in almost any case would have been no. And it will still be no if you are more specific and ask do they have any physiological function. However, Dr. Myung-Mun Jong, who led a study at Awa Women's University in South Korea, reports in the American Chemical Society Journal applied materials and interfaces this month that there is something useful that tonsils can do. So what is this amazing thing? The paper describes a method for repairing damaged liver tissue without surgery by injecting patients with tonsil-derived mesenchymal stem cells. In the U.S. alone, nearly 17,000 people currently are waiting for liver transplants, but a shortage of donors 
high surgical costs and potential complications all remain fairly daunting realities of the procedure. Jung says, quote, there are hundreds of thousands of tonsillectomies carried out each year worldwide, and that tonsil tissue is just discarded. But it turns out that this discarded tissue can be a very good source of stem cells for hepatogenesis, unquote. Hepatogenesis is liver growth. While the abundance of tonsil tissues make tonsil stem cells ideal candidates for stem cell therapy, researchers have lacked a targeted delivery method for actually implanting those stem cells into the body. Jong points out, quote, Some scientists have tried to directly inject the stem cells themselves, but if you inject the stem cells that way, then they'll just get washed away without any tissue growth. So we needed a 3D scaffold that acts like liver tissue to localize the cells into place at a targeted site, unquote. Zhang's answer to this problem was to disperse the cells in an injectable liquid solution that actually forms a 3D gel when it reaches human body core temperature. The lab cultured the stem cells in a biodegradable polypeptide thermogel solution that contained growth factors that helped differentiate the stem cells into liver cells and to promote tissue development. When grown at 37 degrees in a culture system that mimics damaged tissue, the stem cells could be secured in the activated gel without raising toxicity or disrupting pH. The team monitored and analyzed these encapsulated liver cells in the transparent thermogel for a whole month. Zhang says, quote, The ideal system is that the gel degradation time should be matched with the tissue growth time. So we wanted our thermogel to be displaced by the tissue developing from the cells after the stem cell application. Unquote. Now Zhang's team is focused on optimizing their system for cell and drug delivery in animal models. With so many people needing liver transplants around the world, the ability to grow new livers would be amazing. I guess the only thing that would be more amazing would be if you could have a liver grown from your own tonsils. I'm wondering whether a new industry will grow up, like the one that stores umbilical cord blood from newborns. The new industry would store your tonsils frozen away until you might need its stem cells at the end of 50 years of hard drinking. Well, it's just a thought. For you entrepreneurs out there, perhaps you should present the idea on Shark Tank TV or something. Next story. Dr. Andrew Miller of Emory University reports the September issue of the journal Cell that exercise is good for you. Wow, Dr. Miller. Thanks. I always wondered about that. Okay, ignore my snarkiness. Um, There is certainly more to the story than that. Really? Miller found a previously unknown link between muscles and the brain in mice. He says, quote, Our work really emphasizes strong body, strong mind, and the finding also hints at new ways to treat brain disorders. Unquote. It's been known for a while that in response to a good workout, muscles produce a compound called PGC1-alpha-1, which is a kind of general do-gooder around the body. For instance, the compound prompts the body to make more blood vessels and more mitochondria. The new study, which includes tests involving a small number of people, shows that PGC1-alpha-1's rejuvenating effects actually even extend to the brain. In Miller's work, mice were exposed to five weeks of unpredictable stressors, such as food deprivation, strobe lights, and loud noises. 
which to me sounds like your average college dorm. Anyway, at the end of their ordeal, mice showed signs of stress-induced depression, such as not drinking as much sweet water and giving up in a tank of water instead of struggling to swim. Again, this sounds a lot like college students, too, at about the middle of the semester. At any rate, as you would expect, the mouse brains also showed signs of depression, and key genes changed their expression behavior in response to the stress. Miller also did the same experiment with another bunch of mice who were genetically tweaked to produce more PGC1-alpha-1 in their skeletal muscles than normally seen. At the end of five weeks, the overproducers seemed immune to the chronic stress and actually showed fewer signs of depressions. Miller states, quote, nothing happened. The brain was completely protected, unquote. When produced after exercise, PGC-1 kicks off a chain of chemical events in muscles that culminates in neutralizing a stress-induced toxin called kynurinine. If you inject kynurinine into a mouse, that mouse will show signs of depression. And any mouse injected with kynurinine that wasn't exposed to any stressors will still show signs of depression. Miller states that, quote, kynurinine may be a much more malignant molecule than we had previously appreciated, unquote. However, PGC1-alpha-1 is important because its production in the muscle leads to the conversion of kynurinine into a form that can't pass into the brain. The results show how muscle can have a profound effect on other organs. It almost acts like a detoxifying organ, like the liver or the kidneys. Mice that ran on an exercise wheel covering more than four kilometers a night for eight weeks also experienced benefits, the team found. And there were hints that people could achieve the same protection via a heavy workout. After three weeks of exercise, volunteers' muscles produced more kynurinine-neutralizing molecules than you would find in people who hadn't been working out. To get the benefits, anyone would need to routinely challenge their muscles, and that means regularly upping their exercise regimes. And we are talking heavy, regular exercise. Miller says, quote, An easy daily walk probably wouldn't be rigorous enough to boost PGC1-alpha-1 production, unquote. A subset of people with depression might benefit strongly from exercise therapy or from drugs developed to target kynurinine or the molecules that interact with it. Again, Miller says, quote, The benefits of PGC1-alpha-1 probably wouldn't stop a depression. People with cancer, autoimmune disorders, or other diseases that involve inflammation might benefit from stronger muscles. All of these are going to be associated with high levels of kynurinine, and we now know that we can begin to possibly clear out the system by encouraging patients to exercise, unquote. Well, seriously, may I add college students to the list of the stressed and depressed who might benefit from heavy exercise? I know I was joking earlier about dorm and college life, but even in silliness, there is a kernel of truth that can be garnered. Next story. This is a story I got out of the journal Scientist, and it shows that not all countries treat science or scientists in quite the same way. Three years ago, Diego Gomez, a conservation biology student at the University of Quindio in Colombia, posted another scientist graduate thesis online. 
He found the thesis already online, and he reposted it because he thought it would be interesting for other groups. So he shared it on the web. Gomez says, quote, When uploading the thesis, I never thought I was violating any law. I was respecting the authorship of who made the thesis. I thought it was in the public domain because it was already on the Internet, and the only thing I tried was to get it to a research group, and such documents are publicly available. This type of literature is not of commercial interest, so I never thought I could do any damage to the author. On the contrary, I thought that I was giving him benefits on sharing his work, unquote. But the author of the thesis disagreed, and last year complained to the Colombian police about the posting. Gomez now faces up to eight years in jail and at least $6,000 in fine for violating copyright laws. His case highlights the plight of scientists in certain parts of the world who are less able to access and share scientific information. To put it simply, the criminal case would not have gone anywhere in a U.S. court at all. This is because of the big difference between American, and I believe the European Union law as well, and Colombian law. The biggest difference between Colombian and U.S. law is that in Colombia, copyright infringement is a criminal act. In the U.S., the owner of the material would bring a civil suit instead. In a situation like that, Gomez likely would have been ordered to remove the post, which he did before the criminal complaint was filed, and perhaps pay author damages, but nothing more. Carolina Botera, an attorney at Fundación Carisma, who has been advocating on behalf of Gomez, has assigned a different lawyer to represent the student. According to Botera, the prosecution presented enough evidence at a hearing last December that the judge decided to proceed with the trial. She said that the complaint from the author of the thesis is that he was not able to publish papers based on the research because Gomez distributed his results. Colombian media have named a local herpetologist as the complainant, but it is not being made public. Botero told the scientists that she's baffled why Gomez was singled out when sharing scientific material, particularly the primary literature, is commonplace. Researchers who have limited access to libraries, online databases, and journals in places like Colombia often rely on one another to find relevant material. Botero stated to the scientist, quote, If everybody was suing because of this, it would be a huge problem in Colombia because it is so common, unquote. Some Latin American countries have made efforts to broaden accessibility to published research. Argentina, for example, last year passed a law requiring publicly funded research to be published in open access format. Gomez says, quote, Today, what the vast majority of the country's researchers and conservationists are doing, despite being committed to spreading knowledge, is turning us into criminals, unquote. Gomez's next hearing is actually occurring right now, this October, when a judge will decide his case. Next story. I'm really getting to the point where I am beginning to wonder if those people who are on the so-called Neolithic diet have the right idea. Just eat the foods that our ancient ancestors ate, the foods that we evolved with, and maybe, just maybe, you'll be a bit healthier. The latest food fiasco is related to artificial sweeteners, which apparently are pretty harmless by themselves, but have now been shown to be not only useless, but even harmful in the long term in controlling weight, if overindulged in. A new multi-pronged study of mice and as well as a small number of people 
finds that saccharin messes up the gut's microbial community. That's that's an official scientific word or phrase, messes up. And what it will do is it will set in motion metabolic changes that are associated with obesity and diabetes. Other zero-calorie sweeteners may cause the same problems, say researchers, from the September 17th issue of Nature. Though the finding is preliminary, four of seven human volunteers eating a diet high in saccharin developed impaired glucose metabolism, which is a warning sign for type 2 diabetes. Until recently, most sugar substitutes were thought to pass through the gut undigested, exerting little to no effect on the intestinal cells. As ingredients in diet soda, sugar-free desserts, and a whole range of other foods, the sweeteners have always been touted as a way for people with diabetes and weight problems to enjoy a varied diet. But the new study, led by doctors Aaron Siegel and Aaron Elenaf of the Weissman Institute of Science, suggests that rather than helping people, the sweeteners may just promote problems. After 11 weeks of drinking saccharin water, or sucralose, or aspartame, mice had abnormally high glucose levels in their blood after eating. When glucose metabolism is impaired, high glucose levels, again, the hallmark of diabetes, can result. Since blood glucose levels were most off-kilter in the saccharin-fed mice, the researchers zeroed in on this sweetener, which is the one that's found in Sweet and Low. Yes, those little pink packets that we love so much. The scientists gave saccharin to mice that were fed a high-fat diet. The mice developed impaired glucose metabolism in as little as five weeks, suggesting that the sweetener had the same effect regardless of whether mice were lean or overweight. Meanwhile, mice eating glucose-laced water had normal metabolism. Then the scientists gave the saccharin-fed mice antibiotics to wipe out their intestinal bacteria. The mice's glucose metabolism actually recovered after that, suggesting that the gut microbes might play a role in glucose metabolism, and an important one at that. So get ready to be uncomfortable. The researchers then transplanted fecal microbes from the saccharin-fed mice into the guts of mice with microbe-free intestines that then in turn developed impaired glucose metabolism. Genetic analyses of the microbes in the mice's intestines revealed major differences in the microbial groups presented in saccharin-fed mice compared with mice eating just a regular diet. Why? Why is this happening? Well, your guess is as good as the researchers. Apparently, there's a whole panoply of explanations well, maybe some bacteria thrive on saccharin and then just outcompete their neighbors. Maybe the sweetener kills off other bacteria. Perhaps the saccharin exposure makes the gut microbes make toxins of some kind that affect glucose homeostasis. Maybe the sweetener causes the good bacteria to teleport out. That one is less likely. The mechanisms that disrupt glucose metabolism also, really, they remain mysterious, but it's clear that saccharin doesn't just pass silently through the mouse intestine with no effect. It also doesn't pass through people silently either. Whoopee. I thought this might just be a mouse thing. When the researchers looked at 40 people who reported eating artificial sweeteners and compared them to 236 who did not, 
The sweetener eaters were more likely to have had metabolic problems, including, yes, impaired glucose metabolism. And when seven healthy volunteers ate the Food and Drug Administration's maximum acceptable daily dose of saccharin for a week, four of them developed off-kilter glucose metabolisms. Transferring feces from two of these four people into mice, ew again, induced the same problems in the rodents, suggesting that gut microbes were to blame. The authors state that, quote, our results are consistent with a bigger picture, suggesting that some amenities of the relatively microbe-free modern Western society, such as heavy antibiotic use and cesarean sections, may actually promote disease. We have to respect the power of the microbiota. We need to step back and see what we are doing. Unquote. I just find this so ironic that we ban saccharin for years, decades, because we thought it caused cancer. Then we brought saccharin back after those decades, and it still had a health warning. Then the health warning was removed. Now we are probably going to put the health warning back. Perhaps we were just better off when it was banned. For the last story of the night, I will return to our titillating feature of the month. We haven't done a good story on reproduction in several months. So what is this one about? Well, it has to do with reproduction in the nematode worm Xenorhabditis elegans. If a male C. elegans mates with a nematode which is not of his species, it will turn into quite the horror show for the female of the opposite species. This discussion may get a bit hot and heavy for kitties, if you know what I mean, so be warned. Okay, Dr. Eric Haig of the University of Maryland has reported in the journal Plus Biology at the end of July that the sperm of certain species of worms can be more aggressive if it finds itself in the wrong species. The sperm of these male worms can be so aggressive, in fact, that they can reduce the fertility of or eventually even kill the receiving partner. The marauding sperm push beyond normal receptacles for sperm and then storm into the ovaries and the rest of the partner's reproductive tract. Haig says, quote, premature contact with sperm can ruin eggs that have not developed enough for fertilization. Then aggressive sperm can burst out of the ovary and start crawling around in the body cavity, unquote. Haig says he's even found sperm barging around in a partner's head. Biologists or not, all I can say to that is, ew. Even though it is seriously gruesome, such mating mayhem gives clues to which worm species have long-standing conflicts between the sexes, or would be hard to detect otherwise. And Haig doesn't think it's any more pleasant than I do. He says, quote, the cross-species mating results are kind of gross. It's a weird thing, but at the same time, it's telling us that within a species, the world is much rougher than it looks, unquote. The contrasts between the nematode species' mating habits lie at the heart of Haig's experiment. You see, C. elegans are not just male and female, with the expected transfer of genetic information as such. 
In Xenoreptides elegans and several other related species, male worms are actually pretty rare. Most individuals are self-fertilizing hermaphrodites. That's a majority. Nematode gonads do not form elaborate specialized structures. So it's not a big deal for individuals to start out life producing and storing sperm and then later to switch to making eggs for the stored sperm to actually fertilize. These minimalist hermaphrodites don't have the right anatomy to deliver sperm to another worm, but they can receive sperm from the occasional males of their species. Haig says, quote, They go generations without mating at all. The only problem is, is that when you mate with yourself repeatedly, eventually over evolutionary time, the sperm of these species become weak competitors, unquote. There are other species of Xenorhabditis that do have full-time male and females, and they often mate with multiple partners in worm orgies. In such a promiscuous, wormy arena, evolution favors barnstorming aggression that lets sperm reach an egg first. Haig states that, quote, for females of these species, their body is the battleground upon which these males are fighting, unquote. Evolution favors females that make sure the pushy, aggressive sperm that are good at fertilizing eggs don't get too pushy and harm them. As long as the two sexes counterbalance each other, the escalating conflict between the sexes causes little visible harm and can be difficult for a scientist to detect. Signs of the hidden evolutionary arms race reveal themselves when worm species get mixed up. The ferocious aggression showed up when researchers paired males from various competitive species with partners from any of three self-fertilizing hermaphrodite species, including C. elegans. The competitive alien species sperm not only goes on rampages, but can actually push aside the smaller sperm from males of the mostly hermaphroditic species. Nematode sperm can't swim, but are powerful amoeba-like crawlers. In one set of doom pairings, a population of the mild-mannered C. briggsiae hermaphrodites started dying after only one encounter with males of the C. nagoni species. These pairings also yielded only about 25 young on average instead of the 225 or more from hermaphrodites left to fertilize themselves. Wow, I guess Pat Benatar was right. Love is a battlefield. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Always stick to mating within your own species, for safety's sake. Watch that saccharin intake, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. There you go, James. Thank you so much, sir. Next up is the main fiction, and like I say, it is by the one, the only, Mr. Peter Watts, a favourite writer of mine, and damn good friend, to be quite honest. But I've got the, the official bio 
from Peter as well. So his story, Bulk Foods. Peter Watts is a former scientist, author and convicted felon who spent the first two decades of his adult life as a marine biologist. After fleeing academia for science fiction, he became known for the habit of appending extensive technical bibliographies onto his novels. This both confers a veneer of credibility and covers his ass against nitpickers. Described by the Globe and Mail as one of the very best hard science fiction writers alive, the overall effect of his prose is perhaps best summed up by the critic James Nickel. Whenever I find the will to live becoming too powerful, I read Peter Watts. That's fantastic. Story is narrated by Mark Nelson. After getting a BA in radio and television, he spent the next 28 years in human resources, the graveyard of... Useless degrees. After being laid off by his last tech company, after it was bought out by a competitor and shut down, he decided to return to his useless roots. He's been narrating audiobooks since 2006. So, the Starship Silver is very proud to present. Bulk Food by Peter Watts and Laurie Channer Anna Marie Hamilton, animal rights microstar, bastes in the media spotlight just outside the aquarium gates. Her followers hang on every movement, their placards rising and falling like cardboard whitecaps to the rhythm of their chant. Two, four, six, eight, transients are what we hate! One whale hugger, bedecked in a sandwich board reading, Eat the Transients, shouts over the din at a nearby reporter. Nah, it's not about the homeless. It's a whale thing, man. The reporter isn't really listening. Anna Marie has just opened her mouth. The chanting dies instantly. It's always interesting to hear what Anna Marie Hamilton says. It changes so often these days. Back before the breakthrough, she was actually trying to free the whales. She was going around calling them prisoners and hostages for Christ's sake. Save the whales, she begins. The reporter grunts, disappointed. That again. Over at the turnstiles, Doug Larga swipes his debit card and passes through. The protesters register vaguely on his radar. Back in his student days, he considered joining, but only with the hope of scoring with some of those touchy-feely whale chicks. The things he did back then to get laid. Hell. The things he does now. A foghorn calls across the strait. Visibility's low on both sides of the world. The murk is gray above the waterline, green below. The sea around race rocks is empty. This place used to be a wildlife sanctuary. Now it's a DMZ. Two hundred meters out from the islands, perimeter sensors listen patiently for intruders. There are none. The day's too cold for tourists, too foggy for spies, too damn wet for most terrestrial mammals. Nobody tries to cross over the line. Even under the line, traffic is weighed down from the old days. An occasional trio of black-and-white teardrops, each the size of a school bus. Every now and then, a knife-edged dorsal fin, tall as a man. Nothing else. There was a lot more happening out here a few years ago. Race rocks used to be crawling with seals, sea lions, dolls' porpoises. 
It was a regular who's who back then. Escrictius, Focina, Zalophus, Eumatopius. All that meat has long since been cleaned out. Just one species comes through here these days. Orsinus. Nobody asks these visitors for ID. They've got their own way of doing things. Five kilometers east, the commercial trawler Dipnet wallows forward at half-throttle. Vague, gray shapes crowd restlessly along the gunwales, slick, wet, hooded against the soupy atmosphere. Even a fog that drains all color from the world can't dampen the enthusiasm on board. Snatches of song drift across the waves, male and female voices in chorus. And they'll know we are sisters by our love, by our love. Twenty-five meters down, a string of clicks ratchets through the water column. It sounds like the drumming of impatient fingers. Doug's got everything figured. He's found the perfect position, right next to the rim, where the gangway extends over the tank like a big fiberglass tongue. Other spectators, with less foresight or less motivation, fill the bleachers ringing the main tank. Plexi splash guards separate them from a million gallons of filtered seawater and the predatory behemoth within. On the far side of the tank, more fiberglass and a few tons of molded cement impersonate a rocky coastline. Every few moments, a smooth black back rolls across the surface, its dorsal fin stiff as a horny penis. No floppy fin syndrome here, no siree. This isn't the old days. The show is due to start momentarily. Doug uses the time to go over the plan once more. Twenty seconds from tongue to gallery. Another thirty-five to the gift shop. Fifty-five seconds total, if he doesn't run into anyone. Perhaps sixty if he does. He'll beat them all. Doug Larga is a man on a mission. A fanfare from the poolside speakers. A perky blonde emerges through a sudden hole in the coastal facade, wearing the traditional garb of the order. White shorts and a ducky blue staff shirt. An odd-looking piece of electronics hangs off her belt. A headset mic arcs across one cheek. The crowd cheers. Behind the blonde, some Japanese guy hovers in the wings with an equally Japanese kid of about twelve. The woman waves them on deck as she greets the audience. Good afternoon, she chirps resoundingly over the speakers. Welcome to the aquarium, and welcome to today's whale show. More applause. Our special guest today is Tetsuo Yamamoto and his father, Herschel. The woman raises one arm over the water. And our other special guest is, of course, Shamu. Doug snorts. They're always called Shamu. The aquarium doesn't put much thought into naming killer whales these days. My name is Ramona, and I'll be your naturalist today. She waits for applause. There isn't much, but she acknowledges it like a standing ovation and goes into patter. Now, of course, we've been able to understand Orkin ever since the breakthrough, but we still can't speak it at least not without some very expensive hardware to help us with the higher frequencies. 
Fortunately, our state-of-the-art translation software, developed right here at the aquarium, lets our species talk to each other. I'll be asking Shamu to do some behaviors, especially so Tetsuo here can interact with him. Figures the kid would be center stage. Probably some Japanese rite of passage. Number one son looks like a typical clumsy, thumb-fingered pre-adolescent. This could be the day. As you may have learned from our award-winning educational displays, Ramona continues brightly, our coast is home to two different orca societies, residents and transients. Both societies are ruled by the oldest females, the matriarchs, but beyond that, they don't have much in common. In fact, they actively hate each other. A rhythmic stomping begins somewhere in the crowd. Ramona cranks up the smile and the volume, and forges ahead. Research and education. That's the aquarium's motto, and they're sticking to it. You don't get to the good stuff until you've learned something. Now, we've known since the 1970s that transients hunt seals, dolphins, even other whales, while the residents feed only on fish. We didn't know why until after the breakthrough, though. It turns out that residents are the killer whale version of animal rights activists. This is obviously supposed to be a joke. Nobody's laughed at that line since Doug started casing this place over a year ago, but the song remains the same. Unfazed, Ramona continues. Yes, the residents consider it unethical to eat other mammals. Transients, on the other hand, believe that their gods have given them the right to eat anything in the ocean. Each group regards the other as immoral, and the residents and transients have not been on speaking terms for hundreds of years. Of course, we at the aquarium haven't taken sides. Most humans know better than to interfere in the religious affairs of others. Ramona pauses. A faint chant of assembled voices drifts into the silence from beyond the outer wall. Hey, ho, hey, ho, the matriarchs have got to go. Ramona smiles. And despite what some people might think, she continues, there's no such thing as a vegetarian orca. Not yet, anyway. Dipnet chugs steadily west. Her cargo of ambassadors scans the waves for any sign of the natives, their faith too strong to falter before anything so inconsequential as zero visibility. Not everyone gets to commune with an alien intelligence, a superior intelligence in many ways. Not in every way, of course. Many on the dipnet long for the good old days of moral absolutes, the days when meat was murder only when humans ate it. Everything was so clear back then, to anyone who wasn't a puppet of the industrial protein complex. There was a ready answer to anything the ignorantia might ask. How come it's okay for sharks to kill baby seals? Because sharks aren't moral agents. They can't see the ethical implications of their actions. How come it's not okay for people to kill baby seals? Because we can. Now orcas are moral agents, too. They talk. They think. They reason. Not that that's any surprise to Dipnet's passengers, of course. 
They knew the truth way back when all those bozo scientists were insisting that orcas were basically chimps with fins. But sometimes, too much insight can lead to the wrong kind of questions. Questions that distract one from the truth. Questions like, How come it's okay for orcas to kill baby seals, but we can't? If only those idiot scientists hadn't barged in and proved everything. Now there's no choice but to get the orcas to give up meat. The residents have the greatest moral potential. At least they draw the line at fish. The transients remain relentlessly bullheaded in their mammalvery. But perhaps the residents can be brought to full enlightenment. Back on shore, one of the West Coast's best-known Curlian nutritionists is working tirelessly on alternate ways to meet Orsinus dietary requirements. She's already had some spectacular successes with her own cats. Not only is a vegan diet vastly more efficient than conventional pet foods, the cats eat only a fraction of what they used to, but the felines have so much more energy now that they're always out on the prowl. You hardly ever see them at home anymore. Not everything goes so well, of course. There have been setbacks. In hindsight, it may have been premature to dump that thousand heads of romaine lettuce onto A4 pod last summer during their spring migration. Not only did the residents fail to convert to veganism, but apparently they'd actually been considering certain exceptions to their eat-no-mammals policy. Fortunately, everyone on the boat had made it back okay. But that's in the past. Live and learn. Today, it is enough to stand in solidarity with the residents against the mammal-phagist transient foe, to add human voices in peaceful protest for a just cause. The moral education can come later. Now it is time to make friends. The men and women of the Dipnet have the utmost faith in their abilities in this regard. They're ready, they're willing, they're the best of the best. What else could they be? Every last one of them was handpicked by Anna Marie Hamilton. Shamu sails past Doug in midair, his ivory belly a good two meters above water level. Their eyes meet. For all this talk about killer whale intelligence, it still looks like a big, dumb fish to Doug. It belly flops. A small tsunami climbs the splash guards. A few scattered voices go, Ooh! Now, Shamu is a transient, so, of course, he'd never normally eat fish, Ramona announces. This is not entirely true. Back before the breakthrough, fish was all captive transients ever got. A decent meal plan was one of the first things they negotiated when the language barrier fell. So to feed him what he really wants, he knows he has to hide for a bit. Ramona touches a control on her belt and speaks into the mic. What's coming out of the speakers now isn't English. It sounds more like fingernails on a blackboard. Shamu spits back a series of clicks and sinks below the surface. Waves surge back and forth across the tank, playing themselves out against the walls. Doug, standing on tiptoes, can just barely make out the black-and-white shape lurking near the bottom of the tank like a squad car at a radar trap. Peripheral movement. Doug glances up as a great, chocolate-colored shape lumbers out onto the deck. 
It's twice the size of the man who herds it on stage with a little help from an electric cattle prod. Some of you may recognize this big bruiser. Ramona switched back to English. Yes, this is a stellar sea lion. When he was just a pup, scientists from the North Pacific Fishing Consortium, one of the aquarium's proudest sponsors, rescued him and some of his friends from the wild. They were part of a research project that was intended to promote the conservation of sea lions in the North Pacific. The sea lion darts its head back and forth, snorting like a horse. Its wet, brown eyes blink stupidly. And not a moment too soon. As you may know from our ever-popular pinniped habitat, stellars were declared extinct in the wild just five years ago. This is now one of the only places in the world where you can still see these magnificent creatures, and we take our responsibility to our charges very seriously. We go to great lengths to ensure that everything about their environment is as natural as possible, including... Ramona pauses for effect. Predators! A ragged cheer rises up from the bleachers. Spooked, the sea lion bobs its head like a fat, furry metronome. The animal wheels around the way it came, but the guy with the prod is blocking its way. Please try not to make any loud noises or sudden moves, Ramona smiles belatedly. With a few final nudges from the cattle prod, the sea lion slides into the water. It dives immediately, finally curious about its big new home. Apparently, it discovers all it wants to in about half a second, after which it shoots from the center of the pool like a Polaris missile. It doesn't quite achieve escape velocity and hits the water running, lunging for the edge as fast as its flippers can churn. Shamu rises up like Shiva. One effortless chomp, and the stellar explodes like a big, wet piñata. A curtain of blood drenches the plexi-barriers. Streamers of intestine fly through the air like shiny pink fire hoses. The audience goes wild. This is the kind of award-winning educational display they can relate to. Shamu surges back and forth, mopping up leftover sea lion. It takes less than a minute. By the time he's finished, Ramona has the harpoon set up on the gangway. Two kilometers out, one of the chosen hears a blow and alerts the others. The pilgrims again fall expectantly silent, undaunted by the fact that the first three times turned out to be the first mate blowing his nose. To be honest, nobody here has ever heard a real orca blow, not firsthand. No civilized human being would ever patronize a whale jail, and whale-watching tours have been banned for years. They said it was a harassment issue— but everyone knows it was just Bob Finch and his aquarium industry cronies out to eliminate the competition. The passengers huddle quietly in the fog, straining to hear above Dipnet's diesel cough. Whoosh! There! I knew it! And sure enough, something rolls across a fog-free patch of surface a few meters to port. There! See? Whoosh! Whoosh! Two more to starboard. Leviathan has come to greet them. Her very breath seems to dispel the fog. A pale patch of tissue-paper sun lightens the sky. There is much rejoicing. One or two people close their eyes, choosing to commune with the orcas telepathically, 
No truly enlightened soul would resort to crass, earth-raping technology to make contact. Several others bring out dog-eared editions of Biggs' Guide to the Genealogy and Natural History of Killer Whales. Anna Marie has told them they'll be meeting L-1, a southern resident pod. Hungry eyes alternately scan the pages and the rolling black flanks for telltale nicks and markings. Look, is that L-55? See that pointy bit on the saddle patch? No, it's L-2. Of course it's L-2. One of the telepaths speak up. You shouldn't call them by their human names. They might find it offensive. Chase and silence fall over the acolytes. After a moment, someone clears her throat. Er, what should we call them, then? The telepath looks about quickly. Um, this one, she points to the fin nearest the boat, tells me she's called, um, Sister Stargazer. The others oo in unison. Their hands fly to the crystals nestled beneath their rain ponchos. Six-foot dorsal, mutters the first mate. Male. No one notices. Oh, look at that big one! I think that's the matriarch! Are you sure this is even Elpod? Someone else asks uncertainly. There aren't very many of them. Isn't L1 supposed to be a big pod? And I thought I saw... That is, wasn't that big one P-28? That stops everyone cold. P-28 is transient, says a fortyish woman with periwinkle shells braided into her long graying hair. L-1 is a resident pod. The accusation is clear. Is this man calling Anna Marie Hamilton a liar? The heretic falters in the stony silence. Well, that's what the guide says. He holds the document out like a protective amulet. Give me that. Periwinkle snatches the book away, riffles through the pages. This is the old edition. She waves the copyright page. This was printed back in the 1980s, for goddess sake. You're supposed to have the new edition, the one Anna Marie approved. This is definitely L1. Periwinkle throws the discredited volume over the side. Bob Finch had a hand in all those old guys until O2. You can't trust anything from before then. The wheelhouse hatch swings open. Dipnet's captain, a gangly old salt whose ears look as though they've been attached upside down, clears his throat. Got a message coming in, he announces over the growl of the engine. I'll put it on the speakers. The hatch swings shut. A message. Of course, Dipnat has all the technology, the hydrophones, the computers, everything it needs for the unenlightened to communicate with both species. There's a speaker mounted on the roof of the cabin, pointing down at the rear deck. It burps static for a moment, then... Sisters, hurry! A squeal of feedback. Grandmother says, hello! Count on crass Western technology to turn a beautiful alien tongue into pigeon English. Ooh, says someone at the gunwheels. Look! The orcas are pacing dipnet on either side, rolling and breathing in perfect sync. They want us to follow them, Periwinkle says excitedly. Yes, they do, intones one of the telepaths. I can feel it. The orcas are so close to the boat, they're almost touching the hull. 
Dipnet plow straight ahead. Just as well. The whales aren't leaving enough room for course changes anyway. The chair on the gangway is obviously not meant for children. Ramona fusses with the straps, cranks the crosshairs down to child height. She offers patient instruction in the use of the harpoon. Papasan hollers up instructions of his own in Japanese. Conflicting ones, apparently. Tetsuo, bouncing excitedly in the harness, gives nothing but grief. Herschel continues his cheerful instigation. Hey, lady, we pay ten grand for this. We do it our way, thank you so much. He doesn't seem to have noticed that Ramona's smile shows more teeth than usual. This looks very promising. Doug glances back over his shoulder. The route's still clear. Fifty-five seconds. Shamu rolls past on the other side of the plexi. The crowd laughs. Doug turns back to center stage. Ramona's had enough. She's jumped down from Tetsuo's perch and is barking at Herschel in Japanese, or maybe in Sea Lion. Herschel backs away, hands held up placatingly against Ramona's advance. It's entertaining enough, but Doug keeps his eyes on Tetsuo. The kid is the key. Adult squabbles don't interest a ten-year-old. He's strapped in at the controls of the best bloody video game since the parents' groups came down on Nintendo. If it's going to happen at all, Doug knows, it's going to happen... Tetsuo squeezes the trigger. Now. Ramona turns just in time to see the harpoon strike home. The crowd cheers. Tetsuo shrieks in delight. Shamu just shrieks, thrashing. A pink cloud puffs from his blowhole. Doug is already half-turned, one foot raised to motor. He checks himself. Wait for it. It still might be clean. Shit! You were supposed to wait! Ramona's mic is offline, but it doesn't matter. You could hear that yell all the way over in the Arctic exhibit. She brings her translator online, barks syllables. The ringside speakers chirp and whistle. Shamu whistles back, spasming as though electrocuted. His flukes churn the water into pink froth. His lungs punctured. Ramona calls over to the guy with the cattle prod. Prodmeister disappears backstage. Ramona wheels on Tetsuo. You were supposed to wait until I told him to hold still. Do you want him to suffer? It'll take days to die from a hit like that. That's it. Go. He knows what's coming. Herschel, out his $10,000, will demand that his son get another chance. The aquarium will stand firm. Ten grand buys one shot, not one kill. No, sir, you can't try again unless you're willing to pay. Herschel's own shrieks go ultrasonic. Prodmeister will come back with another harpoon, a bigger, no-nonsense harpoon this time. Perhaps the guests will try and wrestle it away. That's resulted in an unfortunate accident or two. Doesn't matter. Doug's not going to be around for any of it. He's already halfway out of the amphitheater. From the corner of his eye, he can see his competition, caught flat-footed, just starting to rise from the bleachers. Some of them, closer to the main theater entrance, would still have a chance to beat him if he was going the usual route. He's not. Doug Larga may be the first person in recorded history to have actually read the award-winning educational displays in the underwater gallery, and that gives him all the edge he needs. That's where he's headed now, at top speed. Herschel and his ten grand, Tetsuo and his lousy aim, 
Doug could kiss them both. When a guest makes a kill, they get to keep the carcass. But when they fuck up, it's whale steaks in the gift shop. Well, no one expected the whales to be such assholes. Certainly not Anna Marie Hamilton and her army of whale huggers. The gospel, according to Anna Marie, said that orcas, you never called them killer whales, were gentle, intelligent creatures who lived in harmonious matriarchal societies. Humans were ethically bound to respect their cultural autonomy. Kidnapping those creatures from the wild, tearing them from their nurturing female-centered family units, and selling them into bondage for barbaric human entertainment, this went beyond mere animal abuse. This was slavery, pure and simple. That was all before the breakthrough, of course. These days, it's kind of hard to rail against the enslavement of orcas when every school kid knows that all orca society, resident or transient, is based on slavery. Always has been. The matriarchs aren't kindly nurturing feminist grandmas. They're eight-ton, black-and-white mommy dearests with really big teeth. And their children aren't treasured guardians of the next generation, either. They're genetic commodities— a common currency for trade between pods. And who knew what uses they got put to? It's a scientific fact that almost half of all killer whales die before reaching their first birthday. That infant mortality stat has been a godsend to the aquarium industry ever since it was derived in the 1970s. Well, of course it's tragic that another calf died here in our habitat, but you know, even in the wild, killer whales just aren't very good parents. But even the whale jailers were taken aback to be proven so utterly right. It didn't take them long to recover from the shock, though, to embrace the irrefutable evidence of this kindred intelligence, to see the error of their ways, to reach out across that immense interspecies gulf with a business proposition. And what do you know? The matriarchs were more than happy to cut a deal. Slavers of the Seven Seas, a wall-sized viewscreen shouts in capital letters. Beside it, smaller screens run looped footage already seen a million times in every living room on the continent. Priests and politicians and longliners and whale-huggers riding the friendship flotilla out into history to sign the first formal agreement with the matriarch of J-Pod. On the other side of the gallery, past two-inch plexi, the pinkness in the water is already starting to fade. Doug skids to a halt in front of an orca family tree, no less boring for its catchy, backlit pastel-on-black color scheme. He scans the headings. G-12 pod. G-12. G-8. G-27. Exit. G-33. There, between G-27 and G-33. Evidently, municipal building codes require an emergency exit here. For some reason, the aquarium has incorporated it into the orca family tree, right there in plain sight as the law requires, but subtle, unobtrusive. In fact, damn near invisible to anyone who hasn't actually read the genealogies line by line. This is Doug's secret passage. He's done his homework. The blueprints are on file at City Hall, accessible to anyone who cares to look. 
On the other side of this invisible door, backstage corridors run off in three separate directions, each servicing a different gallery. All of them eventually end up outside. One of them opens into the gift shop. Doug pushes at a spot on the wall. It swings open. Behind him, a muffled poof filters through the main tank, followed by an inhuman squeal. Doug dives through the doorway without looking back. Turn right, run. Backstage, the gallery displays are ugly constructions of fiberglass and PVC. Every object gurgles or hums. Salt crusts everything. Doug's foot slips in a puddle. He starts to go over, grabs at the nearest handhold. A rack of hip waders topples on his head. Left. Run. A row of filter pumps tears by on one side, a bank of holding tanks on the other. A dozen species of quarantined fish eye his transit with glassy indifference. He rounds a corner. An unexpected barrier catches his shin. Doug sprawls across a stack of loose plywood. Splinters bury themselves in the balls of his hands. Fuck! He scrambles to his feet, ignoring the pain. There are worse things than pain. There's the wrath of Alice if he comes home empty-handed. Right there, a wood-paneled door. Not one of the crappy green metal doors that are good enough for the fish feeders and janitors, but a nice oak job with a brass handle. That's got to be the entrance into the gift shop. He's almost there, and it's even opening for him. It's opening from the other side, and he dives straight through, right into the waiting bosom of the woman coming from the other direction. He thinks she looks familiar in the split second before they both go over. Doug catches a glimpse of someone else as a dozen vectors of force and inertia converge incompatibly on his ankle. There's a moment of brief, bright pain. Ow! Before he hits the floor. The good news is, he lands on a carpet with a very deep pile. The bad news is, Rugburn tears most of the remaining skin off his palms. He lies there, taking collect calls from every sensory nerve in his body. Two people are looking down at him. He forgets all about the pain when he recognizes who they are. Saint Anna and the devil himself. Dipnet has arrived. The perimeter is all around them. A float line demarcated by warning buoys. A limited entry circle a kilometer across. Scientists are only sometimes permitted here. Tourists are forbidden. But the gate swings open for Dipnet. Now she chugs towards the center of the communion zone. The fog has partially lifted. The perimeter gate fades astern, while a tiny white dot resolves in the distance ahead. Dipnet's escort remains close on either side. They've said nothing since that one brief message in the strait, although the telepaths say the orcas are brimming with goodwill and harmony. The floating dock is close enough to see clearly now, anchored in the center of the zone, a white disk about twenty meters across. It seems featureless, beyond a few cleats for tying up. This is the way orcas like things. This is their place, and they don't want it cluttered with non-essentials. A place to land, a space to stand, and race rocks looming out of the fog in the middle distance. Beyond that, only orcas and ocean. Is there a bathroom? someone asks. The captain of the dipnet shakes his head, more in resignation than answer. 
he pulls back on the throttle while the mate, waiting on the foredeck with a coil of nylon rope, jumps onto the platform and reels Dipnet in to dock. This is it, folks, the captain announces. Everybody off. The engine is still idling. Aren't you going to tie up? Harry Winkle asks. The captain shakes his head. You're the ambassadors. We're just the taxi. They don't want us in the zone while you commune. Periwinkle smiles patiently. She hears the resentment in the captain's voice, but she understands. It must be hard, seeing the chosen few going to make history while he just drives the boat. She feels sorry for him. She resolves to chant with him when he comes back to pick them up. The captain grunts and waves her away. He sniffs and wonders, not for the first time, if this woman remembered to clean the snails out of those shells before incorporating them into her own personal fashion statement. Or maybe it's one of those natural fragrances they're advertising these days. The passengers file onto the platform. The first mate, still holding Dipnet's leash, leaps back onto the foredeck. The boat growls backwards, changes gear, and wallows off into the haze. The sound of her engine fades with distance. Eventually, all is quiet again. The Chosen look about eagerly, not wanting to speak in this holy place. The orcas that guided them here have disappeared. Swells lap against the floats. The Race Rocks lighthouse complains about the fog. Hey, you guys. It's the heretic again. He's watching the boat recede. When, exactly, are they supposed to be coming back for us? The others don't answer. This is a quiet moment, a sacred moment. It's no time to chatter about logistics. This guy doesn't know the first thing about reverence. Really, sometimes they wonder how he ever made the cut. One whole plexiglass wall looks into the turquoise arena of the killer whale tank. A pair of tail flukes disappear up through the surface in ratcheting increments. The opposite wall serves as little more than a frame for the biggest flat-screen monitor Doug has ever seen. Murky green water swirls across that display. Wriggling wavelight reflects off a glass coffee table in the middle of the room. An antique oak desk looms behind it like a small wooden mesa. In the middle of it all, Doug looks up from the floor at Anna Marie Hamilton and Bob Finch, executive director of the aquarium. Anna Marie Hamilton and Bob Finch look back. This goes on for a moment or two. Can I help you, sir? Finch asks at last. I... I think I got lost, Doug says, experimentally putting his foot down on the floor. It hurts, but it feels limpable, not broken. The viewing gallery is that way, Anna Marie announces, pointing to a different door than the one through which Doug arrived. And I'm in the middle of some very tough negotiating, fighting for the freedom of our spiritual si- Actually, Anne, uh, Miss Hamilton, I suspect that Mr... Mr... Larga, Doug says weakly. I suspect that Mr. Larga isn't all that interested in the boring details of our... Mm, negotiations. Finch extends a hand, helps Doug up off the carpet. Doug stands unsteadily. I was looking for the gift shop. His mission, precious seconds, precious minutes, irretrievably lost, 
while all those other dorks and bozos line up to lay claim for his meat. If he doesn't come home with the steaks, he'll be sleeping on the sofa for a week. Doug turns and lunges towards the door he came through. He forgets all about his ankle for the half-second it takes for him to try and run on it. By the end of that same second, he's on the floor again. "'My stakes,' he whimpers. "'I was going to be at the head of the line. I had it planned to the second. "'Well, I must say,' Finch extends a helping hand again. It's heartening to see someone so enthusiastic about the aquarium's new programs. Not everyone is, you know. Let me see what I can do. Anna Marie Hamilton stands with her arms folded, sighing impatiently. Mr. Finch, she says, if you think I'm going to let this distract me from the liberation of— Not now, Miss Hamilton. This will only take a moment. And then, I promise, we can get right back to your tough and uncompromising negotiations. Finch takes a step towards the door, turns back to Doug. Say, Mr. Larga, would you like to talk to a killer whale while you're waiting? A matriarch? We have a live link to Juan de Fuca. He raises an arm to the flat screen on one wall. Uh, live? Emotions squabble in Doug's cortex. The pain of failure, the hope of salvation, and now a vague discomfort. I don't know. I mean... They are okay with this, aren't they? The whole whale show thing? Mr. Larga, not only are they okay with it, it was their idea. So, how about it? A conversation with a real alien intelligence? I don't know, Doug stammers. I don't know what I'd say. Anna Marie snorts. Finch draws a remote control from his blazer. I'm sure you'll think of something. He points the remote at the flat screen, thumbs a control. Nothing obvious happens. Back in a moment, Finch promises and closes the door behind him. Anna Marie turns her back. Doug wonders if maybe she's offended by someone who would be in such a rush to line up for orca steaks. Or maybe she just doesn't like people very much. A long, mournful whistle. Sister Predator, intones an artificial voice. Doug turns to the flat screen. A black-and-white shape looms up in the murky-green wash of Juan de Fuca Strait. Lipless jaws open a crack. A zigzag crescent of conical teeth reflects gray in the dim light. That whistle again. In one corner of the flat screen, a flashing green tag. Receiving. Fellow sister predator, welcome. Doug gawks. Clicks. Two rapid-fire squeals. A moan. More clicks. Receiving. I am Second Grandmother. I trust you enjoy Aquarium and its many award-winning educational displays. Bzzzt. In the upper left-hand corner of the screen, line interrupt. Silence. At a panel on Finch's desk, Anna Marie Hamilton takes her finger off a red button. Wow, Doug says. It was really talking. Anna Marie rolls her eyes. Yeah, well, it's not like they're going to beat us on the SATs or anything. A reporter waylays Bob Finch in a public corridor on his way to the gift shop. She seeks a reaction in the wake of Hamilton's demonstration. Finch considers. We agree with the activists on one score. Orcas have their own values and their own society, 
and we're morally bound to respect their choices. He smiles faintly. Where Miss Hamilton and I part ways, of course, is that she never bothered to find out what those values were before leaping to defend them. The door opens. Finch the Savior stands in the doorway with a wooden box in one hand, a plastic bag in the other. Doug, rising with his hopes off the couch, forgets all about the matriarch and his ankle. Are those my stakes? Finch smiles. Mr. Larga, it takes several days to prepare the merchandise. Each sample has to be measured, weighed, and studied in accordance to our mandate of conservation through research. Oh, right, Doug nods. I knew that. The gift shop is only taking a list of names. Right. And, unfortunately, all of today's specimen has already been spoken for. The lineup stretches all the way back into the Amazon gallery, in fact, so I brought a couple of items which I thought might do instead, Finch says. He holds up the bag. There was quite a run on these. I was lucky to get one. Doug squints at the label. Lil Ahab Miniature Harpoon Kit, rubber-tipped, ages six and up. Everyone wants to prove that they're better shots than our guests, Finch chuckles. I suspect a lot of family dogs may be discomfited tonight. I thought your children might enjoy. I don't have kids, Doug says, but I have a dog. He takes the package. What else? Finch holds out the wooden box. I was able to locate some nice harbor seal. Finch the false prophet. Finch the betrayer. Harbor seal? Harbor seal? Your gift shop is lousy with harbor seal. It was marked down. My in-laws are coming over this weekend, and you want me to feed them harbor seal? Why don't I just give them bologna sandwiches? My dog won't eat harbor seal. Finch shakes his head. He seems more saddened than offended. I'm sorry you feel that way, Mr. Larga. I'm afraid there's nothing else we can do for you. Doug wobbles dangerously on his good leg. I was injured in your aquarium. I'll sue. If you were injured, Mr. Larga, you were injured en route from somewhere that you weren't legally supposed to be in the first place. Now, please. Finch opens the door a bit wider, just in case Doug hasn't got the point. Not supposed to be in. That was a fire exit route. Which, by the way, Doug's voice is becalmed by a sudden sense of impending victory, was improperly signed. Finch blinks. Improperly. You can barely see that exit sign, Doug says. It's buried way down in one of those stupid orca family trees. If there ever was a fire, nobody would even find it. I mean, who stops to read award-winning educational displays when their pants are on fire? Mr. Larga, the viewing gallery is solid cement on one side and a million gallons of seawater on the other. The odds of a fire are so minuscule. We'll see whether the fire marshal's office thinks so. We'll see whether the News at Six consumer advocate thinks so. Doug triumphantly folds his arms. There is a moment of silence. Finally, Finch sighs and closes the door. I'm really going to have to put my foot down with the art department about that. I mean, aesthetics or no aesthetics. I want my orca steaks, Doug says. 
Finch walks to the wall behind his desk. A touch on a hidden control and a section of paneling slides away. Behind it, cigar boxes sit neatly arranged on grillwork shelves, lit by the unmistakable glow of a refrigerator light bulb. Finch turns around, one of the boxes open in his hands. Doug falls silent, disbelieving. It's not cigars in those boxes. As I said, there are no orca steaks available, Finch begins. But I can offer you some beluga sushi from my private stock. Doug takes a hop forward. Another. It's almost impossible to get beluga. And this isn't the black market St. Lawrence beluga, the stuff that gives you mercury poisoning if you eat it more than twice a year. This is absolute primo Hudson Bay beluga. The only people harpooning them are a few captive Inuit on a natural habitat reserve out of Churchill, and even they only get away with it because they keep pushing the aboriginal rights angle. Nobody's figured out belugan yet. From what Doug's heard, belugas are probably too stupid to even have a language, so nobody needs to cut a deal with them. The box in Finch's hands cost about what Doug would make in a week. Will this be acceptable? Bob Finch asks politely. Doug tries to be cool. Well, I suppose so. He's almost sure they don't hear the squeak in his voice. To the untrained eye, it looks like rambunctious play. In fact, the cavorting and splashing and belly-flopping is a synchronized and complex behavior. Cooperative hunting, it's called. First reported from the Antarctic, when a pod of killer whales was seen creating a mini tidal wave to wash a crab-eater seal off an ice floe. Definite sign of intelligence, that, the first mate's been told. He squints through his binoculars and the intermittent fog until the whales finish. The first mate pulls open the wheelhouse hatch and climbs inside. The captain throws Dipnet into gear, singing, And they'll know we're sisters by our love, by our... The mate picks up the tune and rummages in a locker, surfaces with a bottle of Crown Royal. Good show today. He raises the bottle in salute. Doug Larga safely departed. Bob Finch extracts a pair of wine glasses from the shelves beneath the coffee table. He fills them from a convenient bottle of Chardonnay while Anna Marie taps a panel beside the flat screen. The distant gurgling of Juan de Fuca fills the room once more. Finch presents the activist with her glass. Any problems on your end? Hamilton snorts, still fiddling one-handed with the controls. You kidding? Turnover in the movement has always been high, and nobody turns down a chance to commune with the whales. It's a real adventure for them. The wall monitor flickers into split-screen mode. One side still contains Juan de Fuca, newly restricted. The other shows one of the aquarium's backstage holding tanks. A young male orca noses along its perimeter. Finch raises his glass, first to the matriarch on the screen. To your delicacies. Then to the matriarch in his office. And to ours. Finally, he turns to the image of the holding tank. The whale there looks back at him with eyes like big black marbles. Welcome to the aquarium, Finch says. A signature whistle carries through the sound system. Name is, says the speaker, no English equivalent, 
flashes the readout after a moment. That's a fine name, Finch remarks. But why don't we give you a special new name? I think we'll call you Shamu. Adventure, Shamu says. Grandmother says, this place, adventure. Too small. I stay here long? Bob Finch glances at Anna Marie Hamilton. Anna Marie Hamilton glances at Bob Finch. Not long, grandson, says an alien voice from the cool distant waters of Juan de Fuca. Not long at all. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is the one, the only Mr. Peter Watts. Peter, thank you so much there. We need to get together. We need to have a few drinks, sir. And Mark Nelson. Mark, what can I say? It's lovely to have you back on. Mark was one of the kind of original narrators for Starship Solar. Like I say, way back in 2006, we kind of had Mark on the show of narrating his talents there and still going strong. Mark, it's lovely to, you know, get you back in the fold on, on the good ship Starship Sova. So... That is today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Just remember, we are still running our Kickstarter. Yes, some things have gone. There's one Tuckerization still left, Ken Stanley Robinson, and it's like I say, there's tickets there as well. So if you want to have you know a fun time in March or a two-day online science fiction convention, pop over and support the, the Kickstarter, and that would be fantastic. Please, please, please. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message, it was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear, please take it slow. So, hello.
Yes, still here. This is quite unusual, talking right at the end, end, end of the credits. But I didn't want to kind of put anything in the show, you know what I mean, just the show of science fiction and fun and everything like that. And what I'm about to you know, talk about is kind of sometimes it's, it's, it's horrible, do you know what I mean? I kind of, I don't know, most knows suffer from anxiety way back in 1992, that's when I, you know what, I kind of live with it and get on with it and kind of have me, you know therapies and all my kind of little sessions not sessions but you know me kind of little talk to myself and things like that and I was thinking you know it, it kind of came back oh I don't know it just started you know slip it back into the kind of like a little the kind of vicious cycle and you know it took us a while to realize what was happening and before you kind of know it you're kind of you're swallowed up and you're almost kind of drowning do you know what I mean you're kind of just thoughts and everything are kind of hitting you from all sorts and it's just silly little thoughts just you know getting you all kind of almost confused and panicky and everything like that and like I said before I even realized oh it's all happening again do you know what I mean so I kind of like say I put myself together and got myself sorted out got out my books got out my learning tools and techniques and I'm thinking you know it's probably there'll be loads out there do you know what I mean who are just going through this and just don't know what the hell's going on and if I can help now in any kind of little way I'm thinking oh, I'd hate people to go through what I've been through do you know what I mean because like you see if you've had even like the slightest thing what I went through you know what I mean because when I first started you know it was just like say 92 there was nothing out there do you know what I mean nothing at all so I'm going to, you know, if anyone wants to get in touch with us, what I'm going to do is to kind of set up some sort of like little kind of hub group, you know, like a kind of five kind of people just to talk about anxiety once a month, once a week, something like that, maybe a six weeks little program. We'll see how it goes. And there might, there might not be anybody, you know, everyone might be kind of first class and top of the world at least the Starship's over. But if you kind of do suffer from anxiety, do you know what I mean? First off, you're not going mad. Do you know what I mean? And that's what I thought when I kind of, Way back in 92, do you know what I mean? Doctors were just kind of pumping you full of kind of sedatives and de- antidepressants and all that kind of nonsense. And it's just, like you say, once you realise what's going on, once you realise, do you know what I mean, what you have to do to kind of set things in, in progress, you know what I mean? Just even the knowledge is such a great thing. Do you know what I mean? Like you say, once you start realising, oh God, yes, do you know what I mean? All oh, right, that's why, and this is why. You know, it's just a, such a like an amazing thing and to be honest and i'm not being kind of like waffly you know trying to be a clever ass yeah but you can only know what we're talking about if you've been through anxiety do you know what i mean and like say if you've had it and you, you've gone through it you know exactly what this kind of loneliness despair kind of thing just woof, comes over and you're drowning with these stupid thoughts and your body your, your mind's racing all the time you know constantly kind of frightening like the, the silliest things do you know what I mean one day you're kind of fine the next day you can't even go to the same shop you went to for like 30 years you can't cross a bridge you can't you know get on an underground and like you say for me it's you know there's still kind of dark places do you know what I mean I just kind of but I've been like say you know a lot more of the last couple of months there really trying to not sit down and beat it because that ain't going to happen, do you know what I mean? But just really kind of submerse myself in it and, you know, just get to live with it. And like I say, if we can do this little group, you know, what I intend to do is kind of just do like a, like a video sessions, you know what I mean? Just have like, say, five, ten people that I kind of really, you know, pretty bad with it, just set up a little group, you know what I mean? Finding my way back to me. 
That's what I'm going to call it. So, there you go. Heavy stuff. It is if you're suffering from it. You know, if you're not and, you know, and you're kind of, pull yourself together, man. Just chill. You don't know what you're frightened of. Just trust us. It doesn't work like that. But if you are having a kind of bit of a bad time with things, anything like anxiety, you know what I mean? Like, see, I'm there with you. I've done it. You know, I've worn the T-shirt for so long. And... You know, I'm kind of hopefully turning a corner there now and putting in things. Yeah, you, you might come back, but you just kind of, you live with it, do you know what I mean? So if you want to drop us an email, you know, starshipsover.gmail.com. We'll see how things go, see if it's anyone's interested in it, and we'll take it from there. Starshipsover.gmail.com, or you can get in touch with us anyway, you know, Facebook, Twitter, out like that. Drop us a note, see how you're feeling next year. Make a make you know a turning point, and you'll get round this corner. Because at the moment, you know people are going through some dark times, and it certainly doesn't have to be like that. You know there is recovery there, so don't think you know it never comes. It certainly does. There you go. Speak to you soon. <laughs>